Hello, Josh Tyson, UX Magazine. Had a really good conversation the other day with Joe Natoli. He's a UX consultant. He's been in the game for about 26 years. He's worked with all sorts of big companies, big organizations, kind of specializes in uh, enterprise experience design. Got a lot of lessons that he wants to share with the community, and uh, he's put them into a new book called Think First, My No-Nonsense Approach to Creating Successful Products, Memorable User Experiences, and Happy Customers. That book comes out on October 5th, so this is kind of a heads up to y'all. Uh, we had a great talk. We talked about unicorns. We talked about the changing na- nature of experience design. We talk about hairdressers. Imagine that. Hairdressers are masters of empathy, in case you didn't know. We also talk about the, the merger last year of Adaptive Path and Capital One. Uh, for the life of me, I couldn't arrive at Capital One. I had Bank One, Chase. Neither of those are correct. Uh, we were talking about the Adaptive Path Capital One merger. But uh, flub aside, great conversation. So let's get right to it. Okay. So Joe Natoli, am I saying that right? Yes, you are. Okay, good. I always like to check that first. I'm pretty, I'm pretty iffy on pronunciations of certain words. So, uh, no worries. Just to keep it clean, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we're here in part to discuss uh, your new book, which is called uh, "Think First. Yes, sir. Um, but I think maybe the the best way to get there might just be to talk about how you got into UX because what I like about this book is that you know there are lots of books that tell you how to do very specific granular things but this book is is uh to me kind of reflects the the uh the inclusive spirit of true experience design which is that kind of anyone can take part you just have to kind of know what you're getting into and uh, and what to bring yeah. what tools to bring yeah yeah well uh the, the story behind that, and the reason the book is the way it is, goes all the way back to uh, my days in, in design school, to be honest. I mean, I, I'm fond of saying that, that it, at one period in time, okay, we, we didn't call this user experience design or, or people weren't even talking about usability. We just called it design. Okay, I, I, I came into graphic design at a time when you still did things by hand. Uh, you were cutting overlays for print ads. You were you were uh, measuring typography to see how many characters would fit <laughs> in a given space. You know, computers weren't introduced until I was pretty much at the tail end um, of my college career. But I was really lucky in that I attended Kent State University, and the way design was taught in that program was that it was about a lot more than simply understanding the principles, basic principles of, of design. You know, what makes uh, elements on, on, a, on the page or in a layout harmonize, you know, um, what dictates good typography or, or good imagery. It was more about how do people receive what you're putting out, right? What you design, is it, is it communicating to them? Is it speaking to their expectation, to their understanding? Is it properly motivating them to do something? Um, is their focus being led around the design in a very purposeful way? So in a lot of ways, to me, all the, all the fundamental principles that I learned uh, in the four years that I was there is the exact same foundation of what I do now. You know, so to me, it's never been just one thing. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's design is design is design is design. And I'm uh, of the belief that, like Massimo Vignelli, a famous print designer, said, if you can design one thing well, you can design anything well. You know? And that, that kind of speaks to, yeah, looking at design as more of, of a process than, uh, than a set of tools or yeah. a, a specific way of doing things. It's like a, it's a process that, that you can apply to a problem. Right. It's it, and again the way it was hammered into us, and, and what I personally believe is that it's first and foremost um, a problem-solving discipline, and that that's really what you're doing. It, one way or another, you're solving communication problems. Now, with interaction, mm-hmm. you have a whole new set of of uh, things to consider, of course. But yeah, design to me, in, in the true sense of the term, uh, is problem-solving. If you're not problem-solving, you're decorating. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too. You, you think of maybe someone looking at, at a poorly designed advertisement or something or, or a, you know, yeah. someone's trying to communicate something with a visual design and, and someone's looking at it and they it's not hitting them the way that the designer intended. And maybe that person doesn't 
can't articulate like really why it's bad or why it's not working for them. But as you move into experience design, maybe it becomes a little more easy for lay people to weigh in on, on why it's, why it's bad because it's, it, there's, it's this whole experience. And if it's not working, it's, it's pretty obvious that it's not working. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a cognitive dimension that happens in, in, you know, digital, uh, interaction design that isn't present, you know, when you're absorbing a print ad or even a, a one-way medium, right? Like television or radio or, or the printed page. There's no cognitive aspect. When you're interacting with something on the screen, you know, your brain is telling you like, I, I get that. I understand it. I know what to do next, or this is confusing. I have no idea what I just did. I don't know where I am. I don't know where to go next. You know, that that's missing from the, the sort of one-way mediums. And was the, the kind of fussiness that goes into really creating a spot on visual design, a uh, piece of visual design, did that um, lend itself well in, in a sense to, to experience design or to the way that you approach experience design? Or is it something that you kind of had to, to recalibrate a little bit? Uh, quite honestly, it's, it's the former. It, it, it absolutely lends itself um, to good experience design because that obsession over the details, you know, the, the whole the quote about, you know, God being in the details Mm-hmm. Um, that's the same thing because a lot of times when we see a UX failure, right? I spend a lot of time with enterprise organizations in particular. When you see a UX failure, where either you know people are having trouble with something, or the end result isn't what anybody wanted, or, or any number of things, it's it's almost never one big staggering thing. It's more like death by a thousand cuts. It's a little tiny details. Right, where that where a button is placed, or the length of a field, or one word in a label that throws off the person's you know context for what it is that they're doing. It's it's always those little tiny obsessive things that nobody pays any attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting too because conversely, like a, a a really it seems these days, especially a really well designed experience looks quite minimalistic usually. Um, you know, the yeah. cognitive load is light, yeah. but what people aren't seeing and, and I guess where that fussiness comes in is like you said, it's behind the scenes a little bit. It's like knowing exactly where to put your call to action. So it's, so it's a, uh, so it's a call to action and not just clutter. Right. I mean, it's a, distraction. You know, it's a color detail. You can have a button that's gigantic, right? And there's lots of white space around it, lots of negative space and it, it sits alone and it's in technically within the user's field of vision and they miss it. Right, so you dig into that and you say, "All right, well, why are they missing it?" And if you watch people, you know what you find out is that because of the color that's being used, or because of some other element on the screen that's maybe up in the top left or top right corner, they're being pulled away from it. Right, their 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 focal point is is somewhere else for some other reason. So a lot of times, I think decisions get made, and they say, "Okay, well, we'll just make this bigger. Right, we'll make it uh, bolder. We'll make the font." larger, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that can have the opposite effect. You know, bigger isn't always the answer. It's about contrast. It's about uh, proximity, similarity, you know, being able to chunk things on the screen and and understand that, okay, this goes with this stuff, this goes with this stuff. Um, And it's, it's often really subtle things. It doesn't take much to throw somebody off the path. And, and what brought you to design initially? Um, was it just, were you always kind of interested in visual arts growing up? Yeah, I, I had been drawing pictures essentially since I was, um, I don't know, maybe five or six. I think since I was old enough to, to, to hold a pen. And I grew up in a very small town in Ohio. And a career in the arts wasn't something that people sort of readily understood, <laughs> to sure. be honest with you. <laughs> And uh, my high school guidance counselor, for example, when I told him, you know, my junior or senior year, I wanted to do something art related, you know, with my life, he essentially suggested that I join the army. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was his answer for me. <laughs> With this kid into shape. Yeah. So I was lucky in that my, my high school art teacher was an incredible, incredible guy named Sam Fatchman. And he sort of saw that I had a thing for visuals and, and text because everything I did in his class always included hand-drawn text as well. And he took me aside one day and he said, I think you should consider this field of study called graphic design, right? I knew nothing about it. Mm. Read a few things about it um, in the college catalogs and, and thought, okay, maybe this is it. So I had no idea, you know, when I went off to school, I got 
extraordinarily lucky again, okay? If lightning strikes twice, this definitely happened to me. The very first day of class, a woman by the name of Katie Kennedy taught my visual organization principles one class, mm-hmm. and, and I was hooked instantly, right? I was just hooked. Everything she said was like, you know, the, the word down from the mountain. <laughs> yeah, that is lightning striking. And uh, your first day of college and you already know what you want to do. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, got, I, I got so lucky. I can't <clears> even explain <throat> how fortunate uh, that is because I was clueless before that. Well, in a career in the arts, too, I mean, you said growing up in Ohio, that was an, you know, an unusual uh, goal to have. But I think even even if you grew up in Manhattan or in New York, you know, someplace cosmopolitan where there are more artists around, I mean, forging a viable career in the arts is extremely tricky thing to do. Uh, yeah, like yeah, certainly. My wife is a hairstylist, and I, I tell her that all the time. I mean, and it's a, a crazy environment, too, because a, a salon is just a, a big pressure cooker of, of all these really artistic people working together who have different, wildly different aesthetics. Yeah. A lot of independent competition, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, but I always point out to her, I think, I mean, I mean, you, and I think she knows too, just how, how fortunate she is that, uh, she's a very creative person who has, uh, who found a really good way to make a really nice living doing yeah. precisely what she wants to do. Something like very creative. And she gets that, that satisfaction on an hourly or by hourly basis as she's, she's cutting and coloring hair. See, and that's, and they're, they're, that, that's actually, no, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I, I think that's actually a really good analogy because in, in, you know, in both design of any kind and, you know, you're talking about hairstyling, you know, what you can do with your hands, the physical part um, is certainly part of that. But the part mm-hmm. that makes you rise above, the part that enables success, the part that allows you to have some longevity, right, in, in, in what you're doing and, and have what you do be valuable to people is what's between your ears, Absolutely. You know? <laughs> well, and interestingly enough, uh, I feel like a, a common theme that, that we touch on in, in the magazine and just in conversations that I have with, with practitioners is the, that maybe not a high enough premium is, premium is always play, uh, placed on communication skills. So yeah, uh, oh, yeah. And part, one of the reasons, I mean, my wife's really, really skilled uh, cutter and colorist, but she's also really good at talking to people and her clients will frequently tell her things that they say, you know, I, Oh, I, I haven't even told my therapist this, but like they feel very open with her and, and they leave, you know, looking different and then also maybe feeling different because she's listened to them, like truly listen and given them good advice. And I think a big part of experience design is that it's like this ability to kind of listen. And I mean, she has to turn off her, her, the noise in her head and step out of herself and just really listen. Yeah. And, and I think that skill set. Uh, is definitely one that uh, is valuable uh, just to have at the at the design table, but also if it's a skill that comes packaged in a UX designer, then bonus points. Totally agree. Totally agree. I mean, it's it's empathy and context, right? Just like in a, in, a, in a client situation, the only way again, the only way that what you're saying or the advice that you're giving them or what you're suggesting uh, needs to happen, the only way that's valuable is if they feel like you truly understand what their problem is, mm-hmm. right? Number one. And then number two, if you're speaking to it in context, you know, if you're, if you're talking about fonts and colors and design principles, you've lost them. If you're talking about the fact that 50% of the people that hit this screen abandon it and call the help desk, right? And, and you talk to them about the reasons that is happening or could be happening and how you find out, how to solve that problem. Well, now you've got their attention. Yeah. So you know? crucial. And I think a lot of, uh, and I think it's maybe because they're not always explicitly taught. A lot of designers often don't speak that, that the sort of empathetic language of, of clients of business. Yeah. And I think in a business setting too, there's kind of this knee jerk reaction to want to dazzle people with your expertise a little bit when sure. really, I mean, a situation sure. like that is calling for you to just be able to identify their needs to see, to see where their product is falling short and to, to help them fix it. Like they don't really need to know, you know, that you, that you, uh, know exactly what font will, will draw in the most users or, or get the highest conversion rate. You know, they, they want to know something a little more, uh, maybe not universal, but kind of more basic. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, early on in your career, um, (laughs) I think you fight that a little bit more because you're sort of so excited to be in the room, especially if it happens to be a large client, you know, mm-hmm. you want to impress them. <laughs> you want to, you want them to feel like this guy knows what he's talking about. Right. So it's, 
you sort of want to start throwing out things immediately, but, but the, the more important skill, and I talk about this in the book, the actual uh, the skill that has more value is the ability to really listen and internalize what they're telling you. Yeah. You know? I mean, I, I, I often think that, uh, like, I, I've been, I, I came to UX from a, from a print journalism background, if, if we go all the way back. Perfect. And I often think about, like, if I, if I was transitioning into, like, a design atmosphere or something, like, how, how would I present my, like, would I have that impulse to, like, want to, like, just kind of distract them with data and stats? And even though I've had more experience in UX, I, I feel like my wife would actually have an easier time going into a client meeting and just totally sussing out client needs and have them feel cared for. So, so maybe that's my prescription. Bring in a really good hairdresser. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, that, that sounds like one of those articles that, that you see a lot of these days. What hairdressing can teach us about user experience? Yeah, I'm surprised. Jeez, I'm surprised I haven't published that one yet. It's yours, man. <laughs> Write it. I'm going to run with it. Go do it right now. I've got some in-house help. So, yeah, but I mean, and I think that's another, I mean, that speaks to the point that, uh, that what I've really liked about UX and, you know, I was nervous coming into it, um, because I knew very little about it, but I think you bring your own perspective, you bring your own uh, experience, you bring your own skills, and, and you can kind of find a way to make sense in this world and, and to, to, to be valuable. And, it, and it, there, it's not, and I don't think everything's even been discovered yet in a sense. Like no. we have the roles are carved out, like the most crucial roles, but there's kind of ways to straddle roles or to even just fill a smaller part of a single role and just do it really well. Like there's so many. There's just so much opportunity if, if you're willing to kind of flex with it and, and grow a little bit and, and kind of admit that you don't always know what you're doing and just being open to learning oh, at yeah. every turn. Yeah, be willing to be wrong. And that, I mean, that's, that's one of my favorite things, you know. <laughs> you, have, mm-hmm. you absolutely have to be willing to be wrong because it's the only way uh, you'll investigate to the degree that you need to. You know, I, when I work with teams in particular, it's... it's the roles that are in the room, all right, I do a lot of training for, for um, you know, organizations, uh, teams, and, and we have everybody from business analysts to the product owners themselves to designers to developers to QA people, and, and the deal is this. Everyone absolutely has a role to play in creating uh, great user experience, right, in creating positive outcomes, in, in straddling that perfect line between what users need and, and what the business needs. And it's, it's kind of, it's a lot like what you just described. You know, there's so many facets of quote unquote UX and it all counts. You know, sometimes the most important thing you can do for somebody to, to speed adoption or, or, you know, impress people with a demo or or whatever it is, is make the damn thing faster. (laughs) Yeah. You know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that counts for a lot because we all have short attention spans and, and we're, you know, They're getting shorter too. Yeah. Yeah. From yeah. what I can see. Yeah. And you know, I don't know how to do that, but if I'm sitting down with, um, you know, the database guys and the backend programmers and, uh, the middle tier logic folks, we're having a conversation about performance, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and, and they'll list any number of ways that can be accomplished. So if you don't have those people in the room, you don't get that problem solved. No. And I think, uh, you know, yeah, sometimes you hear stories of kind of these exclusionary client meetings where just the top level people are there. Um, it happens. And then failure often follows closely behind because, because you don't have the right people in the room. Yeah. Oh yeah. Explaining the true nature of, of the problem to be solved. So, or yeah. at least pointing, shining light on what might be the problem. Yeah. You got to get down to reality. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a big I want to say a stickler, but it's not that I push, you know, (laughs) beyond a level of comfort. But um, almost every time I engage with a client, I I want to make sure that there's some time carved out with the technical team um, in the room, right? Mm -hmm. At at least the leads, because nine times out of 10, there are going to be issues that that come up that we're not going to have the answers to. Absolutely. You know? And so, and so you've been doing this for a while. Are, are, do, you, do you find that, um, you know, now that experience design or UX is a little more front and center, that it's getting, it's getting easier to, to, 
to work with with clients, like especially maybe the larger companies where, where things traditionally might move a little slower? Are they, are they catching on and, and moving quicker and responding kind of in concert to, to the uh, ascension of experience design? I think they are, quite honestly. I, you know, we, we went through sort of a very long phase with, with you know, what I'll call UX in particular, um, where the media was giving it lots of attention, right? We had all kinds of websites, and, and we were all talking, right? Practitioners. <laughs> we had websites, and we had Twitter accounts, and, and, and uh, Facebook, and all this stuff, and we were talking about it a lot. There was a period of time where, okay, then companies started talking about it a lot. But what I experienced was that it was still a tough sell um, beyond a certain point. Okay, the, the sort of product owners and people who were living with the software day in and day out, and, or maybe the help desk people who were fielding complaints, they're feeling the need, right? They get it. They know something has to change. But there are, you know, six to eight to ten layers of management above them where the message hasn't quite gotten there yet. And the message traditionally doesn't get there until they really see um, it's, it's something that, that, that correlates to either making money or saving money so that it starts to make sense, right? Mm-hmm. So I do think in the last couple of years in particular, it's, it's a lot more front and center where a lot of organizations, the large ones in particular, are really putting their money where their mouth is. Because you wouldn't have seen this five years ago. No. And, and I don't know how you draw the, the division between, you know, uh, UX and CX, but part I of don't. me thinks that maybe, yeah, like customer experience, just having it framed that way seemed to really kick off a lot of this. That So now, oh, it's related to a customer's experience? Well, shit, we better yeah. get on it and make it kind of more of a... And what's exciting about that, too, is then it becomes more, uh, when it's done really well it becomes like an organizational change too it's not just that the products and the services change but the structure of the the company changes a bit too to kind of accommodate this new mindset and, and this new way of of operating really well yeah like you know i mean you, you go into a room and, and a question i get asked a lot is why do you need to know that <laughs> because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm typically asking about something that is divorced from what's on the screen you know, it's, it's a process question. It's, it's about, okay, the, if we're talking about a, a chat session or, or an online help session or some, some sort, um, I'm asking questions about that operator, how many people are in the room, what's their environment like, how many calls are they fielding, um, what's the mechanism they're using look like, all these sort of ancillary questions. What color are the walls? Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's all over the place. And, and they say, well, why, why do you need to know that? And it's a great question. I love it when it happens. Because it gives me the ability to sort of explain how all these things are connected. Okay, if you have a problem somewhere that's connected to what you know that person is doing with the software on either end, right, the system end or the or the end user end, it affects everything. You know, this is not a one way exchange, and there are lots of ancillary, seemingly unrelated things that have a profound impact on user experience. You know, I ask them about different departments. Does this department talk to this department? Are they in regular contact? If the answer is no, then that could be an issue, okay? Because what happens in enterprise organizations in particular, because they're so large and everything is distributed, you have all these distributed departments and they're all responsible for different parts uh, of the outward facing service. Nine times out of 10, what we see right now a lot of because of the, the organizational model and because of uh, legacy systems and things like that, is that it's kind of up to the customer to connect everybody. <laughs> you know, they're, they're having a problem and they either get online to solve it, they chat with somebody and they say, well, you have to talk to this department. So then they go to this department and they get a different answer. Then they use a different piece of the software to do something else. But that doesn't solve it either because this other department is responsible for the data that gets sent through that app, right? So it's up to customers to put the pieces together and it frustrates the hell out of them. It does. It'll drive them away if there's an easier way of doing it. So Right. So that's getting back to it in a very long-winded way. Um, that, that's why I ask those questions. I, I think it's, it's important. It matters. Look at it through a customer lens. I think it changes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and especially when yeah, in the business mind too, right? Like you hear the word customers, your ears pick up. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I wonder too. You, so you see, um, obviously there was the uh, the uh, bank one, or I'm sorry, was it Chase Bank Adaptive Path kind of merger? Yeah, right? yeah. Things like that happening. Um, Blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of cr- kind of crazy. I mean, I kind of wanted to stand up and cheer, quite honestly. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, it's like a, a victory for the for the for the industry as a whole. Like yeah, it's it's that recognition that uh, you know a lot of people I think have been craving, you know, because obviously this work is going on in all sorts of all sorts of industries and all kinds of different environments, and there's a lot of people feeling like their their design voices aren't being heard. So it's great in that sense, but I wonder um, if that starts to happen more and more uh is does it become problematic if your your experience design team is completely nested and in-house like are are, are they losing something because they don't they yeah. no longer have perspective of an outsider yeah I th- i'll tell you what I, I think it's entirely possible all right and, and, I, and i think the degree to which that happens has everything to do uh with management technique <laughs> And, mm. and style and corporate culture. Okay, if it's the type of corporate culture where you hire top shelf assassins and then you let them do their job, uh, I think you avoid that pitfall. If you're still running an old school command and control organization where no one can make a decision without checking with 16 other people, I, I think you do eventually fall prey to that because there's in those environments, there's a lot of pressure put on those people in those various departments, you know, at those layers of management, um, that causes undue pressure on the end result. So pretty soon, the objective UX folks are feeling the political pressure just like everybody else. Yeah, and UX cannot be done in a vacuum, so... No, it can't. It can't. And, and, and to your point, it can't be done in a vacuum. That's the other big part, right? In those environments, there's typically very little collaboration as well. It's okay. You're the UXers. Go do your job. Yeah. Right. And it, it seemed like the the early reports uh, from from Adaptive Path were that they were entering a, an atmosphere where they felt really comfortable and confident that they would be able to still do really solid work. But you got to imagine that maybe some of the other companies that see that and are like, oh well, we should scoop up an agency too, might not have thought things through that way and, and could really set themselves up for a, a very public and expensive disaster. Oh, yeah. Your results may vary. <laughs> yeah, right. Your results may vary. No question. <laughs> no question. And, again, it goes back to culture, right? You have to, you have to be able to support it uh, in a way that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I like, too, that the, the second chapter in your book is focused on business and, and that you introduced the idea that UX is business. Uh, cause that's the, or UX means business, sorry. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that's something that we... Uh, we talk about a lot um, in our offices that, uh, that you know, because so much of it is kind of romantic and fun work and very creative, that the, some practitioners kind of bristle at the idea of business getting their thorny hands on it in a sense. <laughs> yeah. But, with, yeah. but without the business, without someone interested in purchasing a solution, like the, the work, the, the experience never, never even exists. It never grows on the tree or whatever. So... So that's something we've we've kind of scratched our heads about. It's like, wh- how do how do you make sure that that designers are seeing that piece of it, and whether that's like uh, something that happens when they're in the field, or if it's something that should begin when they're, you know, first getting their training. Yeah, and and terminology, you know, is is problematic. It's a big part of this. You know, the term user experience, right, starts with user. So the longstanding assumption from from uh, you know, 100,000 feet above is that, okay, this is all about making users happy. Mm, Partly true, but not entirely true. It's absolutely about the person on the other side of the equation. Um, So business is problematic as well, because when you're trying to explain it, as you're saying, to designers, to uh, practitioners, it's hard for them to see that part of it. What I I try to do in in the book and what what I try to do when I talk to uh, individuals in, in training and coaching is, is to say, look, if you're the creator, if you decide tomorrow that you're going to create an app, right, and put it for sale, you know, uh, on the app store, you are the business, okay? You have a goal, whether it's I want 8 million people to download this app for free and just get my name out there or whether I'm looking to make X amount of profit, you know, over time, 
from this, you have a business goal, right? There's something that has to happen once this product goes out into the world (laughs) to satisfy your need, right? So a business is no different. They're larger than you are. They have very different needs uh, financially and otherwise than you do, but it's still a loop, okay? If Value can certainly go out to people, but it absolutely has to come back to you if you either want to uh, make the most of all that time and effort that you spent, or if you want to recoup your investment, you know, if you spent money uh, working with developers to help you or something like that, if you spent money on marketing, those are all business goals. So to ignore that side of the, qua- the equation, uh, I-, I think is, is, I don't know, short-sighted for, for lack of a better way to say it. Yeah. And I mean, whether it, maybe it is just thinking of the business as one of your users, that that has a very you know a different uh, set of needs perhaps, or yeah. maybe just a customer. I mean that that shift works for businesses to to start thinking of users as customers. Maybe practitioners, if they started thinking of users as customers in a sense too, it could realign the thinking a little bit. Hard to know. Yeah, and maybe it goes back to the the, the business thing, right? Where a lot of um, at least in my experience, a lot of designers aren't really exposed to the business side of things in a, in a college setting, although I do think that's changing as well. But the bottom line is creation of any kind entails cost, right? So you, 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 wanna, you want some sort of value to happen uh, for your effort. I think that's a human need above everything else. Yeah, validation. Feels yeah, good. whatever it is, whatever it is, there's there's some cost involved, and there's something that you expect to get in return. Very true. Um, and sorry, I lost my train of thought. Sorry, I was, I was scrolling through your your table of contents. Uh, oh, what's interesting to me too is that uh, so so the first wave of experienced designers were really they weren't formally necessarily formally trained in experience design. It almost has like an A team feel or something. It's just like a, like these, <laughs> these groups of people who are specialists yeah, yeah. in these different areas yeah. who have found a way to combine their skill set and kind of do something radical and different. But now, I mean, we're starting, you know, we're, we're at a point where there's plenty of people entering the workforce who, who were trained specifically in experience design. Um, and I wonder, have you, have you, I mean, you, you've, possibly born witness to this shift uh do you see it as a as a, as a positive thing do we, did we lose something by formalizing the process and trying to teach it was it was it better when it was just kind of a little more ragtag hmm that's a really good question um i see to be honest with you i mean I, my gut reaction is I, I see the same variance um in both camps because even when it was sort of the, the A-team ragtag, very disciplines, um, there were still some people who were sort of thrown into that mix, but still didn't necessarily respect or believe that those other <laughs> points of view were, were important or relevant. Um, they didn't want to hear what B.A. Baracus was saying, huh? Yeah, you know, they thought he wore too many gold chains and was just silly. Right. Um, I don't know, but but... I think that has more to do with, with us as human beings maybe than it does uh, as practitioners. The one thing that I, I do think is happening that's maybe shifting back towards the old approach is that I see a lot of younger UX practitioners uh, and also a lot of what I see in the media, sites like yours, um, uh, a lot of popular websites and books that I read, is that this idea that user experience is sort of multidisciplinary and that you do need to take into account all these other seemingly um, different areas, right? Like information architecture or content, content strategy, um, design, even even developer, uh, front-end development stuff, right? You're starting to see this big push where, okay, designers should develop. Now, I mean, I've opinions about that, but I think the idea that everyone should sort of know something about what everyone else is doing is incredibly important. I think you have to have a working knowledge of of what's around you. You have to have a working knowledge of all the different pieces that go into this particular uh, puzzle, you know? Yeah. Well, because it's a process and and it, it it's, it's it's a collaborative process. I think it works really well when it's collaborative, not just between your team, but also you're collaborating with 
with your client, uh, effectively. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe in a sense it is, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I believe in unicorns or not. I mean, I'm sure that there are definitely people who have big enough brains that they can Rare. hold and use all that information, all that kind of disparate technique. But, uh, but maybe it's more about just, you don't have to know everything about backend development, but you, it, it's probably more important that you can empathize with a backend developer. Like, cause they're, yeah, you know, yeah. you can, you can get in their shoes a little bit cause then you don't really need to know it yourself. You can just be better at communicating with someone who does know how to do that. And so that they see that, that your goals and their goals are intertwined and that you're not fighting them on anything. I mean, I mean, it seems like communication is kind of the, maybe the core competency. Yeah, again, absolutely. And I think that's right. I, you know, the problem with a lot of things is that they, they get co-opted, particularly in, in popular culture or in the media. You know, this, this whole thing about, you know, everyone has to learn to code is a good thing, okay, in and of itself at, at base level. But... I cannot tell you in the last uh, three years in particular, it seems like it's been more pronounced, um, how many frightened designers and UX folks have either written to me or come up to me after, after a lecture or, or something and said, do I have to learn how to code? Like, do, do I, am I going to be at, you know, am I not going to be able to get a job? Is no one going to hire me? Am I going to be less valuable to clients? And there's like this panic. And that's because the minute you start saying, okay, designers shouldn't understand code, that gets co-opted into designers should code. That's an absolute statement. It's, it's, um, it's very general. And life isn't that black and white, you know. What, what really needs to happen is in order to do your job properly, you need to understand the jobs that all the other people um, that you do it in concert with. It's a working knowledge. I can't code really to save my life. I can do some, some front-end stuff. I can do a little bit of scripting. Um, I don't know that stuff. I'm never going to know that stuff. And I don't need to do it. The person that needs to do it is someone who is 40,000 times better at it than I am. <laughs> right? right? I mean, you're, and, and, and to your point about unicorns, I've met two people, two, in the last 26 years who are equally as excellent uh, with visual and UX sort of communication design and front-end development, too. Yeah. And I think that's human nature, okay? You're always going to have your strong suit, and whatever else you're good at is a distant second. You know, I grew up learning how to fix things because my father uh, is an engineer, is an excellent woodworker, craftsman. I can do a lot of that stuff. I cannot do it at the level that he can do it at. And at a certain level of complexity, I'm just going to back off and say someone else needs to do this, right? Because I'm not as good at it, as fast at it, or as efficient at it as, as other people are. Well, yeah, and I mean, you're, when you're coding, you are, it is creating. But uh, it seems to me like maybe more of a left-brain activity, whereas certain elements of, of, uh, of design are yeah. a little more right-brain. So you're, you're sort of fighting I could just see how it'd be an uphill battle. I mean, I've gone through fits and starts where I'm like, I should, I should just take a an online course and learn some coding. Right, the urge is there, and I, and yeah. I get it, and I, I share it. Okay, every once yeah, in a it's while, intriguing. yeah, and, and it is, and I, I do think, okay, I really do believe that that developers and programmers have more right brain than we give them credit for. Mm-hmm. I think uh, coding and and is very much like design in the problem solving part of the discipline. It really is. They're solving complex problems. But the model, uh, for lack of a better term, this sort of mental model that goes along with coding sort of demands focus. You know, yeah. you really have to sort of live and die in that context. And I don't know that you can do both at the same time. Well, it's like sort of like you're, you're solving the problems of the system of, of right. the, when you're coding. Right. Right. You know, so you're solving problems for a different entity and, and someone needs to be there to like align those two things. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's like the myth of multitasking, right? I mean, there's a there's right. hundred scientific studies that essentially say, look, we don't multitask. What we do is we switch back and forth really fast mm-hmm. <laughs> and it feels like multitasking. But the truth is we're not giving our full attention to anything that we're doing. No. Okay. No. And that's what that is to me. And you can't. There, there isn't enough time in the day, first of all, to do both equally well, right? Pressure, deadlines, budgets, those things are always going to exist. There are always going to be constraints. 
that you're working under. So it doesn't help. I think all this pressure to be both doesn't help. And I think it gets worse when organizations put out, you know, job listings and they're asking for one person who essentially is doing six different roles. (laughs) You know, must be able to design, must know UX, must be able to code, information architecture, copywriter, QA testing. Uh, (laughs) You know, I mean, I see these postings and it, it drives me nuts. Yeah. Well, there's just like an age factor too. I think I'm, I'm definitely too old. If I'm going to learn another language, it's probably needs to be Spanish and not like JavaScript or something. Um, but I I think there's value in being able to by sight, recognize what language different bits of code are in, but then, you know, let someone out, let someone who's devoted to it, who, who actually brings, uh, competency and artistry to it, let them do it and be good at explaining to them what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. You got to know what's possible. And you have to know, to some degree, you have to understand the limitations. I totally agree with you. You should be able to look at it and, and sort of get it, you know. It also prevents you from going down uh, certain paths because you know up front, you at least have some sense of, of what's realistic and what isn't, you know, in terms of what the developers can and can't do. I think that that's important. Absolutely. Um, so, so I'm wondering, too, like, when you... UX is a very attractive field, and um, I think people from other industries where maybe some of the work is drying up, UX is very attractive. There's there's more work than there are people to do it. So so as people are trying to kind of step into this world, both even if they're coming, like they're about to go into college or maybe they're transitioning careers, aside from picking up a copy of Think First, uh, what do you what what is your advice to to people who want to who kind of want to break into UX? Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's the million dollar question. And it's one that I get asked, uh, a lot. And and my advice kind of always tends toward uh, the conversation that you and I've been having so far in that understand that it's a problem solving discipline, understand that it's more about how you think than, than what you do. Um, there are any number of resources that I automatically recommend people start with. Okay. I mean, obviously I would wholeheartedly recommend that they buy this book, um, (laughs) for, for obvious selfish reasons, but also because it, it, it talks about the upfront strategy part. And that to me is the linchpin, right? You succeed or fail based on whether you're solving the right problems. Okay. Whether you dig deep enough. So that's the first part. But, but books like, I mean, like Steve Krug's Don't Make Me Think. Classic. Oh, my God. I mean, read the book. Buy it right now. It, you know, if, if you don't own it, stop what you're doing <laughs> and go buy it right this minute. Yeah, even if you just use technology passively, it's worth reading. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just so well done. I mean, you know, Jesse James Garrett's book, uh, obviously, for the same reasons. Um, I'm a big believer and I recommend this book to anyone uh, who will listen as well, is, you know, Universal Principles uh, of Design is another one because those are the traditional design principles, right, the things that I sort of learned in college. Mm-hmm. And uh, that stuff just sort of never stops being true. <laughs> no, no, that's funny because I, I read an article. It's an article that's going to be in UX Mag in the next couple of weeks, but the, the crux of it was that, we really need to have, we need to think a lot about biology, about human biology as we design. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and his, what he's talking about is that, you know, human beings haven't changed much at all over the past, uh, I don't know, like 10,000 years even. That's right. So that if you gave someone in uh, Mesopotamia or whatever an, an iPhone, they would conceivably pick it up pretty quickly because it draws on, on natural instincts and things that are just hardwired into us. So, so certainly something, you know, the, the, universal principles of design aren't something that are going to fade or fall by the wayside as, as, uh, you know, whatever, as technology continues to change dramatically. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's always the first piece of advice I give anybody. Okay. Number one, be an information sponge, right? Absorb and learn everything that you can. And not just about, you know, UX in particular as a, as a discipline, take the time to check out all the, all the connected areas, right? From, uh, you know, what people are saying about interaction design, information architecture, ethnographic research, um, programming, 
you know, and again, like we said a minute ago, you're not necessarily going to be able to do all these, those things um, equally well. But you do need to understand how all these things work together and, and how it impacts what you do. You know, so that, that background is sort of the first part. The other concern I hear a lot, and I don't know if you guys hear this, is that everybody is sort of worried that they don't have anything to show. Like they want to, want to break into UX and they say, well, you know, what do I, how do I build a portfolio or what do I, how do I sort of demonstrate that I understand this? Um, which I think is important because I, I think your, your ability to convince someone that you can do this sort of, sort of stands or falls based on the evidence that you have. And, and I'd be interested to hear how, what you think about this. My thing is if you don't have evidence, create it. Okay. <laughs> Go back to an old project that you've done um, or, or a business situation where you were, you were doing strategic problem solving of some sort where you made something better, right? You had a roadblock, an obstacle, uh, and you solved it. Now, if it's software related, obviously uh, all the better. But if not, you know, uh, I don't know, find a friend's website or, or, or find a popular website and, and break it down and deconstruct it and, and use that. Absolutely. We, we had a, a great article. Uh, I think it was called I Love You Instagram Now Change. Uh, and it was written <laughs> I by, remember it. <laughs> yeah, written by a young practitioner. And what she'd done is she didn't understand why Instagram didn't have a built-in tool for making photo collages, which they actually now do, which is funny. Um, and it kind of looks similar to what she proposed. Uh, so she, she drew up prototypes, basically, showed exactly how that kind of tool would work, what it would look like. Uh, made a case for not only why it should exist, but you know how it should work. Yeah, so, absolutely. I mean, you, can, you can do something like that. You don't need to be restricted by, by no one hired me to do this. Like you know, there's products and services everywhere that could use fine tuning or could use a complete overhaul. Sure. I mean, we've all gone uh, to a store at some point and had to press cancel for credit. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm <laughs> Okay. What's that about? What 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 could be better about this? Okay. Well, <laughs> there you go. I mean, that's that's user experience. You're doing it. You know, if if you're deconstructing that problem and and explaining why it's a problem and then explaining why solving it is valuable. Yeah, um, and if you can solve the cancel for credit problem, you're going to get a job anyway. So. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It just never fails to amaze me. I saw it again today. I, I yeah. was out earlier today. A little piece of tape right next to the red X. Right, which and the red X is like okay, delete everything you just did, <laughs> and, it, and there's a little somebody wrote in in pen credit <laughs> with an arrow, you know. And I, I also think um, the the last part to answer your question, and I hope I'm not belaboring this, um, is that you kind of have to get out and do it, and, and that's proven true in, in just about every area of, of my life. <laughs> There's uh, the prevailing wisdom is that, you know, people who decide to start something new, a new career, or they're fresh out of college and they say, oh my God, no one's going to hire me. Um, there's this sort of, there's a lot of fear and trepidation or, or maybe anxiety. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be fear, but I think there's a pervading myth that people are, are, are somehow fearless in all their endeavors. And I don't think that's true. I, I think what really happens is <laughs> you feel more fear than you could possibly know what to do with and you do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you have to start somewhere. If you're, if you're new in a field and you say, well, I haven't had any experience. Well, you need to get some. And the only way to get some is to sort of dip your toe into that water uh, and, and go, right? Do something. Well, the nice thing too about experience design, uh, and it's something that I think has rubbed off on corporate culture in a, in a really positive way is that's that notion of kind of embracing failure and looking to failure, you know, as, yeah. you, as you continue to refine your solution. Good point. So, so it's kind of a safe, then a, a safer than a lot of industries to kind of be, you're, you're in a place where you can say, yeah, you know what? I don't know, but I, I have some ideas or I really want to hear what you have to say. And then you, you it's just, uh, things move a little quicker too. So you don't have to like, linger and get hung up on, on, uh, on failure, really. Or yeah, I agree on, with on you. On that fear, you can move past that fear and grow from it pretty quickly. I agree with you, and I, and I think the rise of, of, you know, agile and lean methodologies did a lot to discourage that as well, because, you know, 
the old way, the waterfall way, where was predicated on the idea that, okay, now we know everything there is to know about this part of the project, we're secure, and we're moving on. And nothing is like that, right? Projects aren't like that. Work is not like that. Life is not like that. No. It's, uh, it's, it's evolution and adjustment and course correction, you know, uh, all the time. So I, I think maybe that's helped as well. Well, I think the two, uh, the idea of just getting out there and doing it kind of touches on the need to just be out there in the community. Because I think, you know, if you're trying to break into UX and you have, maybe you do have some samples, some, some work to share, uh, and, and you have an idea of what your core competencies are, you, you still, if you're out there talking to people and getting to know people, yeah, you know, oh, yeah. It's that, that is what's going to kind of push you the extra mile, I think. Um, and it's something I came, I realized way too late. Like, I had some great internships in college that were, uh-huh. some of them were, were focused squarely on, you know, <laughs> this, is, this is how you report a story, that kind of thing. But the ones that I feel like I really missed the boat on were the ones that were, they were really just about making connections and nurturing connections and knowing people in the, in the industry and in the field. Uh, and of course, that's true in experience design, uh, as it's true anywhere, really. But, but uh, that, that's kind of an edge, too, is just to be out there, no, talking to people, being in the community a little bit, being a familiar face, knowing a few folks. Yeah, and asking, asking questions, you know. I yeah. mean, Asking questions, the best thing you can do is say to somebody, okay, what would you do in this situation? You know, nine times out of ten, people are, are more than happy to share their experiences. There's a portion in the back of the book, you know, where I essentially say, <laughs> look, if there's any wisdom between the front cover and the back cover, it has a hell of a lot to do with a, a large number of people <laughs> who were doing a lot of this work before I was doing it uh, mm-hmm. and, and while I was doing it. And without those interactions, okay, and in particular, uh, without, like we're talking about people sort of being generous enough to take, you know, 10 minutes of their, of their time and, and just have a conversation about stuff, man, I mean, a lot of this, a lot of this wouldn't be possible, okay? It's, it's the only way you gain the kind of knowledge that really matters. You know, book knowledge and, and theory will only take you so far. Yeah, there is, there is no I in experience design. No. There, I guess there's two eyes, but <laughs> more than one, right? <laughs> Actually, there is. Well, cool. Well, thanks, thanks, Joe. What's what's the best way for people to to locate and purchase this book? Think fast or think first. My apologies. Yeah, no problem. Uh, it will be in several places. I mean, obviously, uh, you can go to the website, which is givegoodux.com/slash/think-first. Um, but it'll be available uh, everywhere October 5th. Okay, we'll be on Amazon, we'll be in Barnes & Noble, we'll be on iBooks. Uh, we're going to try to get into the Google Play Store. Um, and, you know, we'll have soft cover uh, as well in addition to, to eBooks. Well, great. I, uh, I thank you for your time this afternoon. Uh, it was great talking to you. Thank you, Josh. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so thanks once again, Joe. And like he said, you can go to givegoodux.com slash think-first to pick up your copy of Think First. And uh, yeah, till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>